Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, I went to the ABC and auditioned. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. And <laughs> <laughs> as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello, thanks for joining us today. My guest in this episode of Stages is Daryl Lovegrove. If you feel like I feel, please let me know that it's real. Because you're just too good to be true. I can't take my eyes off of you. Daryl is a showman, an award-winning performer and the producer of some of the biggest and most popular corporate entertainment shows in Australasia. His foray into the corporate world commenced with the highly successful The Three Waiters, an entertainment that travelled extensively around the globe and opened offices in Sydney, London and New York. As a performer, he has featured in the musicals Les Miserables, Chess and Jesus Christ Superstar. And he has shared the stage with talent as diverse as Sarah Brightman, Jimmy Barnes and The Wiggles. Lovegrove has recently released a book that he considers a blueprint for standing out in a crowded, crazy, changing new world. The book is titled Why Haven't I Heard of You? And he hopes that it will support the reader to reinvent themselves, become more resilient and provide the actions to become professional, more relevant in your career and successful in the myriad of roles that life offers. It's a good book, a fascinating read, and I eagerly pounced upon the chance to chat further with Daryl Lovegrove. Let me know that it's real, cause you're just too good to be true, I can't take my eyes off of you. <laughs> <laughs> nice to see you, Mr. Lovegrove. Great to be here, Peter. Yes, it's, it's been a while. Um, I think the last time was in a, a staff room in the inner west some, somewhere. That was a few years ago, wasn't it? That would have been the late mid. That have been the mid to late nineties, believe it or not. Right. It's when I, f- I first uh, went into casual teaching. I had a, my first um, what do you call it, break as it, an actor. We realised, whoa, I've been been really lucky for many years. You were between jobs. I was, and right. but for the longest I'd ever been, I'd, I'd, I'd basically been full time actor between eighty eight and ninety seven. I'd kind of never been. Out yeah, of work, right. and I remember Lindsay Partridge. I went to a, uh, you know, Lindsay um, went to a rehearsal one day, and Lindsay was um, a repetitor. My repetitor, yeah. and he, I walked in and went, Daryl, Daryl, never out of fucking work, Lovegrove, and I went, oh, what does that mean? And I did, <laughs> and apparently that was the, um, the kind of reputation I had in those days, which is a very nice thing to say, of course, um, but I, you don't think about it when it, you, you know, it's, it's happening. But then I had that that period that we all had, hmm. and then I realised, oh, hang on. I'm a primary school teacher. I forgot about that. So I, I was living in Redfern. Got the map. You know, those old, those old Mel, books. Melways. Melways. Got the, yep. got the Sid, Sidways out. 
So there I am, did a big circle around Redfern, I was living in Redfern, just down the road from where we were recording this very thing, over in Pitt Street, in, in Strawberry Hills. And I found all the schools there and went and visited them over a two-day period. And, and of course, it's a very in-demand area for casual casuals. teachers in those days. Redfern and Waterloo don't exist anymore, but they did in those days. That's when, that's when I saw things that you're not supposed to see. Because uh, I suppose a lot of creative artists um, with dip heads were doing the, the casual circuit. We're, I don't know. Were there? I'm, I mean, there should be. That's one thing I, I recommend to anybody's. I do as well. Yeah. It's, it's, it's great. You know, it's, so good. The hours are more reliable than yep. um, driving into cab or yep. working behind a car. You don't have to be a full-time teacher. Go out and enjoy being yep. a casual teacher. And if the, you get the call in the morning and you've got an audition or something, you can you just say, no, I'm not available. Well, it's, it's actually better than that because yep. of this new app called ClassCover. If you've got an audition coming up next Thursday, you yep. just say you're not available on Thursday on the app. Right. You're not going to get a call. Every other day, you want to work, you can, you can work. It's phenomenal. Wow. It's so good. See, the app wasn't around when I was casually. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's, it's brilliant, brilliant now. Well, yeah. I grew up wanting to be an actor, and um, eventually I did, of course, but perhaps like you, I had a dad who was very cautious and, you know, said, get something to fall back on, you know, yeah. being aware of the, the precarious life of, of an actor. Me too. Um, so that's your story as well. Yeah, but it sounds like we had, we had the same thing going on. Yeah, yeah. So, I, so I did was, you train after secondary school, or was that sort of mid? Yes, I did. Career? No, I yeah. did. I did, and it was it was I was two thirds of the way through my degree when um, the Cameron Macintosh came to Auckland to um, audition for Les Misérables. They were already halfway through the Sydney season, the first year. And I went along, I think it was April that year, and um, they chose Rob Guest and myself to, they flew us over at the end of the year, and we were rehearsing for what became the last seven months of that Sydney, original Sydney company. We didn't, we didn't do the first 12 months, but we did the last seven months, you know, of that whole 19-month um, run at the Theatre Royal. Yeah. And that was, uh, that was the beginning of my professional career, was Les Mis, and it was an amazing time. So you and Rob guess the two Kiwis that, yeah. uh, that came over. That came over. So how long were you with that second company? Seven months. Seven months, right. And um, I was understudying um, Peter Cousins, and um, uh, Pete was great, but he bloody well hardly ever went off. Right. And I was a man, a young man in a hurry, yeah. and I didn't and want to go what, and just repeat all that again. Play. I just I, I love the character of Marius so much. I wanted to play it all the time, and I wasn't going to, so I realised I had to get out. And uh, within... Two months, I'd won the Australian Singing Competition, thanks to Margie DeFerranti, who talked me into it. Margie was in, in that company as well, and she said she just wanted, of course, the year before. She said, Daryl, you should, you should enter it. I didn't know what it was, and I went along, and, um, and I pulled it off. It was amazing. Um, and then, uh, before I know it, Dad McLeod broke his leg on stage. In January or February of 1990, because I won the Australian Singing Competition late 89, and then January, February... 90 or March whatever it was he broke his leg and then the next day I get a call to come in and audition it for the understudy and that was thanks to Dean Lotherington this is the, the musical this chess. chess this is chess now and I didn't I, uh, and Dean had it was the understudy David McLeod and he obviously he broke uh, Dave broke his leg on stage one night and apparently they had a company meeting Obviously, they said straight away, they closed the show, told the audience, just wait for 15 minutes. Do you know how he broke his leg? Was it a fall? You no, know, he, he um, it was the scene where, in the first act, beginning of the first act, where he's, he's the first sort of chess games, and, he's, and he gets angry with the, the paparazzi, and he jumps off this um, level that he's on, and 
jumps onto the, the floor and runs after the, the, the cameramen who are running off. Right. And they, apparently he was um, ru- jumping off in such a way that he was being warned. They said, David, the way you land, why don't you, you know, bend your knee when you're landing? You, you land, seem to land like on a straight leg. It looks like you're going to break your leg. And he laughed. Apparently he used to laugh it off until that happened. Oh, and no. they said they could hear the crack at the top of the, um, you know, of the, <laughs> the gods of Theatre Royal. Um, so he was off for 10 weeks and, and they immediately stopped the show for about 15 minutes and got Dean ready for it. And Dean played it. Of course, they had to have a company meeting that night. And they, they said, well, Dean, you're obviously going to be the American for, you're going to be Freddie Trumper for the next 10 weeks. Does he, do we have quick any ideas who can be the own study? And he, and he who, and Dean had just done Les Mis with me. Uh, he said, um, call Daryl Lovegrove. And I got the, I was, I was, how about this? This is a job I really miss. This was the day of Grace Brothers. Right. Where Myers is now, Pitt Street, and I was the guy on the information desk because I just won the singing the competition. Yes, yes, I'm the guy who says who comes up and goes. Sorry, um, where can I find greeting yes. cards? Oh, oh, the seventh floor, and right. and apparently today there's every every purchase over fifty dollars gets you a free umbrella. Go on, you know, go on, kind of thing. And and I would get things to say on the tannoy. I would I would. Um, now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to Grace Brothers. And at 10 o'clock this morning, of course, there's a fine dining in the so-and-so floor. Or on the sixth floor, there's a special where 40% off all purchases. I loved it. I used to put my radio voice on and everything. And apparently it's a bit of a hit because the next thing is everyone's coming to me with something, you know, oh, can you say this or can you say this? You know, we, we've got a special. And I was thinking, why, why haven't people done it before? But they just hadn't really. And, um, and it was going really well until the day that uh, my um, agent sent one of her... People, Penny, the great late Penny Williams, knew yeah. Penny. Yeah, she sent one of her people t- um, to find me, and they said, "There you are." We want to wonder where the hell you are. And I said, "What are you talking about?" I said, "Did you hear what happened last night at the Theatre Royal?" I said, "No." I said, "Dad McLeod broke his leg." I said, "You're kidding." I said, "No," and they need an understudy, and they wanted us to hear you. Right. Um, can you go like, and then like when you get off? I don't know, probably two hours. When you, can you come across the Theatre Royal? They want you to hear. They want you to see if you can do Pity the Child. Oh God! And I hadn't sung it for a while, and I had no reason to. So, but um, I kind of knew it, and so I went over there, stood in front of them at the—I can't even remember where it was now. But um, the Betty Pounder uh, Studio or something. Yeah, yeah no, um, yep. Yeah, oh, could have been. Maybe it was the Theatre Royal. Yeah. Must have been Theatre Royal. And um, walked in and did Peter Child, and I said, "You've got the gig." Stays that way. 
He can get all he ever wanted if he's prepared to pay. I did. I was an ensemble for ten weeks, and every day I'm, I'm learning more about. I'm learning one scene from the ensemble just to really get me into thing. But I'm learning Freddie like crazy, and then. Uh, but I never got to play Freddie. But uh, but it was a fun. It was like you know what was great about it. It was ten weeks. I knew it was ten weeks, and I didn't want to do another long run show anyway. So it was like doing an amateur show, but right. except I was being paid for it because yeah. it was like you know it's fun. It wasn't like a job, you know, where I'm here forever and ever, and oh my God, how long is the run going for? There was light at the end of the tunnel. There was tunnel. light at the end of the tunnel. I had a great time. I met some fantastic people during Chess. Who, who directed that production of Chess? Oh, that was, um, oh, oh my God. Um, Australian creative? Yeah, yeah, the guy who did yeah. Rocky Horror, uh, the, the famous director. Oh, Jim Sharman. Jim Sharman. Right. Jim Sharman, yeah. He, he directed uh, Chess. Right. Is it, in your opinion, is it a good show? Because it's been problematic in its its life, hasn't it? I mean, people, it is. They tinkered with it. The creatives are constantly just to try and get it right. Yes, and to and please forgive me for dropping a name here, but I years to come following this got to know Tim Rice very well. In fact, Tim wrote the foreword for my book, um, and I talked about to Tim about this, and he's the first to admit that he didn't get it right. He said to me, "I by the time we got to Australia, it had already done New York, and of course." London, and he said the great thing about London was that the Berlin Wall hadn't fallen by that stage, and therefore it was still very much a Cold War piece, and it worked. By the time it got to Broadway, um, it was the, it was, the Berlin Wall still hadn't quite fallen, but it was it was clear that the East was falling, yep. disintegrating, and that Perestroika was already in place, and that things were going to change, and and so therefore they ch- changed the whole KGB FBI relationship. You know, songs like. Um, oh, I miss the good old days when we knew you were a spy. You know, these days, who, who knows what's going on and, you know, that kind of thing. But by the time I got to Australia, the Berlin Wall had truly fallen. And so therefore it was this new new kind of dawn where, where you know, they're still spying on each other, but it's but um, it's just not, hasn't got that, that intensity. And of course, in Australia, they didn't start in Murano. Uh, and, and go to Thailand in the second act. They started in Thailand in Bangkok. Right. Bangkok, one night in Bangkok used to open the second act right. in, in, uh, in London. I think it did in New York. But by the time it came to Australia, the whole thing was in Thailand. And you know, one of the first numbers was one night in Bangkok. And therefore, the whole thing is set up around a chess championship in Thailand and the, the shenanigans which go on. Oh, I love ch- and chess. And you know, musical theatre performers, it, we all, so many of us say chess is their favourite soundtrack. Oh, it's one it, of those shows which has the most amazing score. Yeah, I mean there are a lot of shows around like it, but that, but the book is just doesn't work. They can't get the show right. But um, mm. 
you know, I think Mavak and Mabel is a great score. Yeah, but, but, but the, the book just doesn't work. Doesn't work, work right. Musical called Rags, fabulous score, but yeah, just right, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't gel on stage. Well, I, I still I still loved it. I remember seeing Chess. Um, I saw it before I auditioned for it, and I loved it because I just love everything about Chess. And I love all that intrigue and, and, and the thing the, re, the whole thing that it has to make you think. It makes you think. You can't just sit there and let it wash over you. You've got to follow. You've got to say, what, what did he say? What's that character? What? Again, again, I love that. I've got to follow this. This is It's like Hamilton, you know. That's a, it's a very good thing about I love about Hamilton. I didn't think I was going to like it that much. And I did was that it really challenges you cerebrally. You have to really concentrate on what the hell these guys are talking about or rapping about, you know. And so because I'm a huge political junkie. I love that stuff. I knew who Alexander Hamilton was years ago, and all the forefathers of of the American, um, you know, the people who wrote the Constitution and all that kind of stuff. So I was always intrigued by by that. But go back to chess, it did, it did suffer. It, I think it I think it lacked the the that Cold War. I think it needed to re- remain a Cold War story. Yeah, and I think that would have been the best way of doing it. So, Les Mis, you're at university. How, yep. how do you get the call to audition for this juggernaut that's happening in Sydney at the time? It was actually really drawn out, um, unusual affair. I was, as you said, I, I took a bit of time off my degree um, uh, because I got into this show um, where I had to go to Wellington for seven weeks to rehearse for this big show for Expo. Remember that year, 88 was Brisbane Expo? Yep. So I went out to Wellington seven weeks and the, this cast of all these top sort of musical theatre song and dance guys and girls from New Zealand we, we were put up in a, you know some motels there and we took this whole show together and we flew over to Brisbane in August and we did three nights on the river stage which was a, because on, in New Zealand week New Zealand week culminated the Friday the, the, the Thursday, Friday, Saturday night was New Zealand week and we were the show and it was one of them most amazing experiences of my life actually that was amazingly fun and we did put on a really spectacular unusual very creative innovative style show and um then that next day it was finished i went down to sydney and saw lamez knowing that i was still up for it but i still they still hadn't made up their mind and all the time I'm sitting there going, I think I might, I might be in this thing in a few months' time. I just don't know. You better start growing a beard in your hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. I was growing my hair. Um, and then I got a call, and all you guys listening to this who know the old Cam Mac team, you'll all remember the late um, Matthew Delco. And Matthew gave me a call in um, October uh, and said, no, no, actually, I gave him a call, sorry. I said, what's the story? I have to know because I've got exams coming up. And he went, oh, have you? You know, kind of thing. And he said, I can't tell you it. So I rang up the next week. And I said, Matthew, I've been given my exam dates. And I've got a feeling that some of them are going to be when this new company that you told me the other day would need to start rehearsing by. I've got an exam on this date and I've got an exam here. And he said, oh, look, I'm not supposed to tell you, but all right. Okay, they put us in a fix. You're in. So you better start working the dates out. I go, oh, my God, oh, my God. <laughs> so I, I was a kid from Auckland who'd never been in a big pro show. And, and I was completely, of course... And my head was spinning. This was Les Around, the biggest show in the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah. And um, But I had two exams I still had to sit. And, and I sat the first one in Auckland. Uh, two days later, flew over to Sydney. And in my first week of rehearsals, they gave me an hour uh, the afternoon off to go and sit some place at University of New South Wales or something. And I, I did my right. exam there. Exam, great. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So because I, I, I dropped it down to two papers. Because right. although I've lost so much time from doing that other show, but um, I was still kind of like roughly around two thirds of the way through the degree. 
What's the experience like joining a company that's already established? I mean, I know some of them had left. How many newcomers were going There's quite a few of us, second? actually. Some big names. Yeah. Um, um, about, I think, 10 to 12 decided to um, part ways. I, I replaced Ian White. Right. Um, and yet, this was James Lee. So this is his first show. You had Rowan Tickle joining the joining the thing. You had um, John Simpson. Gosh, Margaret Differenti. You had Alex Longman. You had um, Dorothy uh, Do- Dunbar. Did she? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dorothy Dunbar. Yeah, 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 absolutely. She played um, my wife in Tenardier's Inn. Hi, Dolores. Um, and um, you had some. Oh gosh, oh, Sandy. Um, San, oh, uh, can't remember Sandy's surname. They're all, they're all listening, calling out. Yes, of course. They're like screaming at the thing, going, "How could you possibly forget my name?" <laughs> no, some, some, uh, uh, um, uh, Keith Robinson. Yeah, I'm yeah. Talk, talking to Keith in a few weeks. There you go. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, who else was in there? Uh, well, of course, um, you had John Dietrich coming and replacing Philip Quast. You had, um, well, Rob ended up replacing Normie, of course, because Normie got into trouble with Cam on that very last night. Oh, so Rob just went in as well. Rob was the understudy. understudy. He was the understudy, right, okay. and he was going to always. I mean, Normie Rose, obviously, he was, you know, favourite. He was, and he's. A, I, I love Normie, um, but but he parent he he had a bit of a dust up with Cam, and Cam said on the final night, "You're not opening Melbourne. See you later." Right. And um, so that was a that was a real real uh, that was a really big thing, um, and you also had. Did Deb Bernard stay with it? Yep, Deb Deb stayed with it for that seven months. Um, so did Anthony. Um, um, well, well, no, Noy did it with us, yeah. but but he didn't do carry on with Melbourne. Um, he went. Normally did the whole of Sydney, um, but Deb stayed. Anthony stayed. You had um, um, uh, Rob and Arthur staying, and William Zappa joined. William Zappa joined. He was Tanadia. Re- he replaced Barry. Barry Langrish. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, um, yeah. Quite a few Australians and Kiwis have been through that production, yeah. haven't they? Have they have. Over the years, played mm. various various roles. So, born in New Zealand, but you spent your early years all over the place, didn't you? Oh, yeah, I had an amazing um, childhood. When I was seven months old, my dad, who was a lawyer, got a job um, lecturing in law in Malawi, in Eastern Africa, uh, borders on the west of, of Mozambique, and um, just above in those days Rhodesia and um, I was there for three years and I, I um, had a nanny Gertrude and we had a cook Dixon was his name and we used to go to Monkey Bay on Lake Malawi for holidays and my first memories of life were Malawi and I remember you know um, that incredible life of living the colonial kind of life because obviously they were looked after pretty well by the government being, being people flown in to run organisations and stuff like that um, so, so mum and dad lived their kind of their colonial life, and um, uh, my grandmother used to say, "Gosh, you know, we'd, I'd put you in the pram and take you down to the local village." And I had the blondest of hair. I had white, white hair. I look at pictures; I can't believe how white it was. And you can imagine a little white boy with white hair going to village. Well, of course, everyone would just surround me and want to touch my hair and my touch my skin and all that. And I used to think I was a little prince. That I came back to it. Came back to a holiday one time with my with my other grandmother, and and, and, and apparently I was quite the little lobster. <laughs> yes, like why are people doing exactly what what people do everything for me back in Africa? What, what's wrong with you people? Kind of thing, yeah. <laughs> you know. Kind of, and then I went to Geneva as a as a four year old because Dad got uh, a job with um, the United Nations 
in Geneva, working for the um, Labour Law Office. And I started school in Geneva as a, as a little four-year-old. Um, and we lived in a little village called Me, which is about 10 minutes out of Geneva, um, very close to Lake Geneva itself. And then when I was uh, about five and a half, mum and dad split up. It's about 73 now. And I came back to live in New Zealand with my mum and my brother. My brother was born in Geneva. Um, and then dad lived in Hong Kong for 10 years, lecturing in law. So every six months, my brother and I would go off and visit him. And the school holidays, every second school holiday. So I had this amazing years and uh, spending a lot of time in Hong Kong. With, and he married a Chinese girl, a wonderful lady called Dom. And they've had two kids. And we were very close to them. And... Um, so I had that, you know, African, the European, and the Asian uh, cultures very much um, um, exposed to me, and I absolutely loved it. So, it so was those, a, those formative years, you're, you're constantly adapting to different worlds. Yeah. Do you, do you think that teaches you um, some sort of resilience and survival technique that, oh, that, that you carry through the rest of your life? Definitely. And I'm. I think the thing that really was that it was constant change. I went to. I think seven or eight primary schools. Um, I was in all these different countries. They were speaking different languages. Um, you know, I was the only English, only boy in my my, my French, my uh, Swiss school who couldn't speak French. Um, and so, all the constant change. We're changing now. We're moving here. And so, I got used to always living at different places and moving on, moving on. And that, I guess, gave me a huge form of resilience of constant change. And let's face it. We've been living in an incredible era of change, and I'm been fine with it. I'm, I'm that's what I'm used to. I'm used to pretty much things always happening, moving along. So it helps you tremendously, and also helps you, I think, with a worldly view. I don't want to say like a wanker saying that, yeah. but the fact of the matter is, is that I was the only kid. There's no wonder when I was at school in Auckland growing up that during '81 I was the one putting secret signs up in my school proposing the Springbok Tour of 1981. Right. I just thought it was an anathema that we would be playing South Africa yeah. as a little 13, 14-year-old. I was incredibly, you know, against it. And um, and how, my other people in my class couldn't give a shit. And it was yeah. like, you know, <laughs> you wouldn't, you know. But I, to me, world politics and all that kind of stuff. And, but you were informed. You'd had a lived yeah, experience. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. My, and my parents were very... Um, you know, of, of that kind of mindset as well. You know, they, they loved Africa. My, my, my grandfather was was the um, principal of Auckland Teachers Training College. I come from an education family. And he actually lived in Ethiopia for 10 years setting up schools and training colleges. So he, he was working for UNESCO. So he had the, he had the Ethiopian thing going back 10 years with my grandparents living there. They're just, they're, that's unbelievable, you know, uh, a life they led. And then we, of course, were Malawi. And so that, that Africa's in our blood. And um, and that whole uh, that whole thing of, of identifying with the at the time apartheid and how it must be fought on all fronts was very uh, prevalent. What was your education like in the arts in those schools? Uh, choirs, bands, drama it's classes, all of the above, absolutely. And from a young age, I was lucky. I had teachers who recognised that and put me forward. Great example is. Um, when I went to my last eight years of school, where there was a settling period, because I went to a boarding school for eight years. Um, I was a ten-year-old when I went to a boarding school in Auckland called Dilworth School. And was that enjoyable? I mean, I oh, well, the first first year wasn't great. Yeah. Having to say goodbye to mum every Sunday night and not 
seeing her till the following Saturday. Yeah, really tough on a kid. Yeah, real tough on a kid. But you, it's funny, you know, pretty resilient kids, and and you some of them aren't. Some of them fell by the wayside and they set to leave. But you actually kind of get used to it faster than you think, and um, and you make the most amazingly solid friends. Mm. And I I still in touch with many of my teachers as well. Um, those are the days, you know, used to get caned a lot and all that sort of stuff. And but but oh, the good old days. Good old days. I'm serious. <laughs> I, I have I've I've had many drink and and social occasion with um, many teachers who who you know rap, like to wrap it around quite a few times. Oh really? And really? Um, but I don't I don't begrudge them at all. You know, I, I was always getting caught talking after lights out. I had to yeah. But it doesn't deserve a caning. Well, and I don't know about that, Peter. You've got to keep, you know, that's the, I, that's I, the rules. <laughs> I mean, I agreed with you at the time. I would have agreed with you right. big time. I copped it as, um, oh, I must have been in about year five or something, you know. But, yeah. I mean, some of those teachers then were quite sadistic. Oh, absolutely. Some uh, of them shockers. Period, shockers. That age, yeah. and, 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 I mean, and, and I suppose they were, they were men and women too who'd survived depression and, and the war, and so they were pretty fucked up. Well, well, some of the young ones were the sets were the sadists, right. the young ones, you know, in the seventies who, who going getting university degrees and getting a job, you know, being a tutor at a school. Well, put a cane in their hand, yeah, they're happy to happy to to lay into ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen year olds. It, it's pretty disgraceful that that should have never been allowed. And uh, I was on the receiving end of that a few times. Um, but funny enough, I don't harbour grudges about it. You know, I understand that was at the time. I'm sure a lot of the people now. You know, I probably sit there going, "What the hell was I ever given that job to cane kids for? What are we how, how bizarre?" Yeah. You know, I mean, as a school teacher now, I, I'm, and I teach the odd day at, at uh, secondary schools. You know, I, I would have had twenty, thirty years ago, the power to cane people. Look at this bizarre. You know, I, I, I could never do it. No, no, you know? no, no. But they could, and you understand at the time that not only they were they were required to. You know, are we going to? We need to. Oh, that was part of the discipline. Part of the discipline, uh, yeah. Act, they right. were required to. Then uh, that's, the, that's what it takes. You know, so you got to do it. When were you bitten by the the showbiz bug? Um, pretty early on, and I had a teacher at at Dilworth who noticed me as a ten year old coming in on Monday morning. I was a treble, the boy soprano, and he, and we. I remember the very first week he'd, he'd run along the line, and we'd all have to go la 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 just do some scales. And when it came to me. You know, I did my scales up and down, and he stopped and went, "What's your name?" And I told him, "Said, just do that again." And he, and he, he just, he didn't let me go on a bit further than the other boys, and and then he carried on the line, and then very soon he gave me a solo, and I was, I remember it because I was, I, it's the worst performance of my life. I was so nervous. I was a little ten-year-old, um, doing Thomas Atwood's "Come Holy Ghost." And it opens, come holy ghost, our souls inspire. And I was absolutely beside myself all weekend, knowing that on Sunday night, I'm going to have to do a solo in front of the whole school, with all the mothers and all the, right up to the gorillas, you know, the year, what we call year 12s today. Those days we call them seven formers. And I'm so tiny and nobody knows me and I'm just nothing. And I'm going to, I've got to sing the solo. Well, I was a cock case. I remember just absolutely so nervous that even before he started, he looked at me and he, he had to just stop and just look at me and go, take, just take a breath, everything's going to be all right, you know. It's and unusual because it, most kids are, I think, are fearless, are happy to take on I wasn't fearless that day. I was completely, incredibly nervous and it was terrible and I was mercilessly, um, um, you know, reminded about it the following week. And and I just thought he will never pick me again to be a soloist, but he stuck with me. And six months later, he gave me another one. And this time, I developed a lot and got used to it. And um, 
and he, he and then of course you know so I became the head chorister and gave him many solos and we did two two albums actually I've got a solo on each side of each album the Duet School Chapel Choir I'm very proud of that as a as an eleven and twelve year old when I when I recorded those albums and I look back at then that was the you know to give me that that foot up that and and believe in me and take me forward and let me have, give me another go was was so important and. Um, and to do those albums was an amazing, amazing thing. And then, of course, my voice... I was one of the last kids in my age to voice to break. But at one stage, I was a treble and a bass. It was just taking so long to make up its mind. And then I fell into a bass. And then a few months later, it had, it had turned into a tenor. And, uh, and then he gave me... I was the tenor soloist. I was one of those guys who were able to keep the voice going. So a lot of boys lose that voice when it, when it breaks. But I kept on going. As teachers, we have a really privileged position, don't we, to sort of spot emerging yep. talent like that yep. and, and to guide it and, and support it. Through, Absolutely, through and you can see it. I'm, I'm currently, I'm currently Mossman Public, and I can just hear those voices, the individual voices, come down, and and I'm the one. I'm, I'm, I love being there, going, just, just, just making a point, just saying that was fantastic. I, but what's your name, mate? And he said, Tom. Tom, that's absolutely beautiful. Well done. And Tom sits up and goes, Oh, oh was it? You know. And I'm going, that's the least I can do. I've got to let him know that it, what he did was worthwhile. It was it was had a value. And, you know, I want him to really know that, to feel safe that he did that and feel good and confident that he did that. You know, that's what I try to create in my music classes, a feeling of confidence and safety that Miss Lovegrove's class, you can give it a go and it's all good. I think at school you also played a role which would figure prominently later on in your career, um, Big role, Jesus Christ. Yeah, the first time I played it was with the drama club, drama club, and we mimed the motion picture oh, the soundtrack. <laughs> and it, it, we mimed it. I've got still got photos of me at home with all of that eleven-year-old angst doing Gethsemane to Ted Neely's voice. I only want to say if there is a way. Take this cup away from me For I don't want to taste its poison Feel it burn me I have changed I'm not as sure As when we started Then I was inspired Now and tired Listen Surely I've exceeded Expectations Try for three years Seems like thirty Could you ask as much From any other man But Saga through and do the things you ask of me. Let them hate me, hit me, hurt me, nail me to the tree. Well, I have to know, I have to know, my lord. Have to know, I have to know, my lord. Have to see, I have to see, my lord. Have to see, I have to see, my lord. Why I should die? Would I? Than I ever was before 
Would the things that I've said and done matter anymore? Well, I have to know, I have to know, my God. Have to know, I have to know, my God. Have to see, I have to see, my God. Have to see, I have to see, my God. If I die, what will be my reward? If I die, what will be my reward? Uh, that year I was telling you before 1988 when um, uh, I was um, doing a few other things which was interfering with my, my university degrees before this is sort of seven eight months before I, I came over to Australia I did an amateur production of Superstar at the North in the North Shore the Pump House anybody who lives in Auckland knows this is Pump House famous Pump House there and it was the North Shore Operatic Society and that's when I finally got to actually play the role because uh, Superstar um, as, you, as you know in my book it, it so the the the, moment, the really big part of my life, the the bit changed everything, was when my auntie dragged me to see the movie in 1973 as a seven year old. That's easily the most poignant uh, sliding door moment that I've I've ever had, and I I I made a choice then. That was my gave me my purpose. I've always had a purpose since I was seven. So what was it about that film? Was it is it the score of Superstar or yeah. I mean they're quite interesting visuals you know the yeah. a, a pack of hippies going out into the desert and... it was school holidays in 1973 and my mum was the eldest of eight kids and so she was i think probably in her th- young 30s and her younger sister number eight mum was number one and her eight was still at school as a 17 year old and she said i need you to come and look after my boys while i'm at work you know and i'll pay you money and, she, and we, she came around one day, she said, OK, guys, we're in the bus, we're going to town to see a movie. And I'm like, great, you know, Clint Eastwood, something like that, you know, good, bad and ugly, that was, whatever was out. And she said, no, we're seeing a movie called Jesus Christ Superstar. And I said, Barney Pam, I know, but I have to learn about Jesus at school. I don't want to see a movie about Jesus. I don't want to see it. I want to see a action. And she said, shut up, you little rat. Coming with me and you're just going to enjoy it, whether you like it or not. And I remember going annoyed I remember sitting in the whole day and I must have given her a real bit of attitude because I remember sitting there in the cinema I, I still remember the name of it there's a century where they're walking public libraries now it doesn't exist anymore this, the, the theatre I mean something across I wanted to let her know I wasn't happy and of course the, the theatre lights go out and then you hear this as this lizard goes across this, this this ancient ruin thing, and then there's this bus with all this dust coming at the end of it. And I'm thinking, what the hell? What is this? And they all get out of the bus and dress up, and these emot- put the helmets on and these capes, and they're all looking at each other away. And the next thing, they disperse, and there's Judas and the. And I'm thinking, well, I was completely sucked in, like like. Unbelievably, I was just this kid going, I don't understand what I'm looking at. All I know is it's freaking me out and I can't get enough of it. And I was completely hooked that 90 minute, whatever long it takes. I just couldn't get enough of this. The the people were screaming at each other in the most glorious way. And then there were soft moments and there were hard moments and there was flogging and there was a crucifixion. It was unbelievably, it it completely immersed, just assaulted me. And I remember com- coming out of the movie into the d- cold light of day, being so devastated by it and so moved by it. And I knew I needed to be 
like those people on that movie. I needed to be a singer and an actor, and I needed to pretend to be other people. I needed to to be because I know I can sing like that. As a, even as a seven year old, I was kind of a bit of a weird kid and would sing a lot of the rock and roll songs on the radio, and you know, really sing them in the way that other kids just didn't. And um, and I knew that's that gave me permission to dream about being a performer one day, and and that and I'd never forget it. So to play it. An amateur role, um, 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 you know, as a what is twenty-one year old with a microphone, actually sing it for the first time was fantastic. To win the role in '93, when Harry and Miller gave me the gave me the role in New Zealand with Jay Lagaya and Margaret Ehrlich and Ricky Stevens and Mark Hadlow and an amazing cast. And then and then this was following his production in yeah he did the this, Arena Spectacular. The Arena Spectacular was '92, right? And then uh, a year later, they're they're planning the theatrical tour. And um, John didn't want to do John Farnham didn't want to do the theatrical tour, so they had to find a Jesus for the Australian tour. And luckily, John Stevens came back for that because John John did the the, the stadium one, of course, um, as as Kate Sobrano did. But this time, they asked Danny Hines, and and so Margaret Ulrich and Jay Lagai were my Judas and Mary in New Zealand, and then in Australia, my. Judas was John Stevens and my Mary was Denny Hines. It was an amazing 16 month uh, tour of my life. Yeah. 94, 95. You've obviously seen the film a few times. Yeah. <laughs> the detail that you described there. Yeah. 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 Oh, I definitely. Still today, I, I still love watching it knowing this, these are the bits which, as a kid, I remember thinking, oh my God, <laughs> how fabulous, you know. I mean, Norman Jewison, just as the director, just caught it so beautifully. He just could have been. It's hard for me to watch other productions. Uh, my daughter made me watch the Tim Minchin one the other day, All right. and which is kind of kind of similar to what we did in 1945 with with Staircase, the Staircase. But but I, I I I didn't like it because I wanted to like it, but I just hated that no effort to to to, to decide you know to differentiate the Romans from the high priests. And so therefore, if you don't know the story of Jesus, there's just a whole lot of people running around in suits and whatever, and people are yelling at each other. I don't know. If I'm thinking, I wouldn't know why he's yelling at, yelling, at, yelling at that person. I don't know why that person's angry at that person. Who is that person? Whereas I love the way the movie, you know, there were the Romans, and, and Joyce Jewison made them stick together. They weren't allowed to fraternise in that whole year they were filming. Not, not, not on a consistent basis. And then there were the high priests, and they stuck together, and the, the disciples stuck together. And therefore, you always had that really that three... The three major kind of components of those those characters, um, uh, sets of characters. Um, but I, I couldn't I couldn't like it. I didn't know what. I was just a, oh, it's just a just a big you know, yell fest. But but no, I don't really know what's going on. If I didn't know the role, you know, I'll then let you know the story. It's not. Um, a show comes to an end, and um, there's a voice inside us that keeps asking, "Am I ever going to work again?" Yeah. After a while, I mean, you know, you had that long run of of continual work. Um, it's a very volatile and precarious industry, isn't it? It um, really you is. Can't take it for granted. You've, and, um, no, you don't. And it's a young man's game too. Um, you know, I, I look back and I, I look. I played. I played. I understudied Marius. I understudied Freddie Trumper, the American. Those are two big male you know, roles, but, you know, big, big vocal roles. And then I played Jesus, one of the great male vocal roles. And, um, and, and I look back and I go, why, 
don't why aren't there any roles been written ever since ever since then there's been actually very if I can't I don't know of any apart from maybe Roger in Rent but even then uh, that that has required that kind of role that kind of young rock opera role well I suppose um I suppose the, Hedwig. Yes, and the and the role that our dear friend Michael Felsom had a a, a big. Uh, oh, we were rocky, so, of course, yes, of course. Yeah, what yeah. am I talking about? Yeah. Yes, we were rocky. Yes, and, I, and as I must admit, but by that stage I was very much uh, You're a bit too older, old, a bit older, <laughs> and and um and I was very lucky. I saw the original guy in London play that, and I saw Meg Ayesa play that in London yeah. at the Dominion Theatre. We had an office right next door to the Dominion Theatre, and we would we would set up the three waiters. We were in New Oxford Street, and, and we'd look out my window and down at the stage door of the Dominion Theatre. And um, and then, of course, I saw Michael play it. Michael, Michael um, I hope we talk about Michael, because um, Michael was one of the first five or six of the waiters, the three waiters, and did about 300 shows for us. Wow, wow, mm. wow. Mm. Well, I suppose it's a good segue now to uh, launch into the three waiters, mm. because... Um, it's a, it's been a big, huge success for you. Um, it started sort of your corporate career and, mm. and, and life as a businessman. When when did opera enter your world? I suppose then. Um, the three, there's a whole bunch of well, not a whole bunch. There's probably two or three major reasons why the Three Waiters exploded and became the number one show in the world. So if, I guess first of all, define what the Three Waiters sure. is for the listener. Look. Um, the three waiters, Mark Bradley, was Mark Bradley's idea. Mark was a, a mate of mine, and we were we were flatmates. We'd been mates for years. I I lived with him during Les Rab. We had a place in Manly. I lived with him after I did Superstar. We'd had a place in Elizabeth Bay, and I lived with him in Pitt Street. Um, when uh, and, and down the road, when um, I was doing some other stuff, opera has never been a thing. But I could always kind of give you a party, do it as a party trick. Is this finding your inner Kermit? Yes, it is, Peter. I'm interested how you say that. I've read the book. You've read the book, haven't you? Um, and look, it was the time that the three tenors were the biggest show on the road. They were making more money than Rolling Stones were. They, they were the number one touring act during the 90s. They just killed it. Everywhere they went, they filled out massive stadiums. And um, therefore, the pop culture was all about the three tenors. And so therefore, that was the number one. If you, for instance, what I'm saying is, if you launched an idea like the Three Waiters today, it would never get anywhere near the leverage that that we did in those days because it's not coming off the off a pop cultural um, uh, phenomenon. Well, the success of something is often about the timing, isn't it's it? It's timing's everything. I mean, we had the right timing. Chess earlier, yeah. and, you know, the falling of the Berlin Wall. I yeah. mean, perhaps marked up the success of chess, but but timing, was timing, perfect timing for is waves. every absolutely yeah. everything. We had we did all going. For, we didn't know, of course. We just we just put it together, and and you can look back at then you can realise, oh, okay, okay. So, um, I know a little bit about it. I mean, I toured with um, Sarah Brightman and Anthony Warlow in the music of Andrew Webber back in '96, and and Sarah was very much doing her opera thing, and just quietly, if you ever saw that music of Andrew Webber, Sarah was great. And all the songs that you loved her the best were the ones she was miming because she was then, by that stage, a full-blown opera singer who didn't want to sing Macavity anymore and couldn't really sing Macavity anymore or the, some of the other songs. Now, she did sing some songs live. Half the songs she sang were live, but they were the ones where she really was quite operatic in her So she degree. had a different voice. Had a different voice. Um, and, and, and I was starting to listen to a little bit of opera by that stage and uh, touring around um, you know, that Australasian tour of '96. Um, I did a lot of other plays and, and little musicals and stuff like that at, at the time. Um, but 
I suppose opera was on my radar as something I could kind of do. And anyway, the funny thing was, Peter, and this is what I want to say to everybody out there who's thinking, should I audition for everything? My answer is pretty much yes, because I was given an audition from my New Zealand agent to to audition for Terence McNally's masterclass for the Auckland Theatre Company. I'm living in Sydney at the time. I'm thinking, but what? Why are you asking me to do this? Uh, I mean, you'd be cool to play it, but I'm I'm, I'm not an opera singer. It's Maria Callas giving a masterclass exactly to students right. at Juilliard. Yes, yes exactly. And, and it's a great play. I, um, I, I did ended up seeing it somewhere. I can't remember now. Oh, with um, Maria Mercedes. Yes, oh. Callas. I saw um, her on Broadway with Zoe Caldwell oh, originally. Oh, yeah, very nice. 96. Very nice. Um, but um, anyway, I... Um, so I went over to Auckland and I did Recondita Ammonia from Tosca. Because I'd learned, I'd spent two weeks listening to a Placido Domingo cassette tape. Over and over, rewinding, over and over, rewinding. It wasn't the greatest quality, so I, I wasn't—I didn't have no idea what the word, Italian words meant. And I just learned as much as I could. And I went in there, and I remember saying, I'm about to sit in front of people who are opera experts. Yeah. And I've never had a singing lesson in my life. Not a musical theatre singing lesson. I have, no one has ever taught me. How to, the only way I could get in to, to get there confidently was that I had worked out to my ear that opera singers kind of sound they sing like um, people do when they do a Kermit the Frog impersonation like when I hear Jim Henson doing Kermit I go he's speaking like an opera singer sings you know he's got that, that, that there's Kermit right there right, everybody right and the bird and Ernie ah, and then you just have to turn that into a singing voice and the next thing you know you are operatic You've got that opera, that opera tama. It's up in the nasal. It's cavity. in the nasal, yeah. and it's kind of it's just controlling that sound there. And um, uh, anyway, but I did that, and and of course I didn't get the role. Like I would have been terrible if I got the role. Really, would not have. Tried. And I ended up going to one of the guys who ended up becoming one of the biggest opera stars of New Zealand. You know, so good. That was good. But I, I remember coming back and feeling a little bit like stupid, silly. And saying to myself, why, why did I spend two weeks learning this thing, thinking that I could actually pull off that role? Mm. You know, it's ridiculous. A week passed, and I'm still kind of got my tail between my legs, thinking, why did I, I spend a you know air ticket back to New Zealand on that? Wasting my time dreaming. What a dream I love, Grove. You know, you, you dickhead. What were you thinking? And Mark walked in, you know, to the place that we, you know, we were living together, just down the road from here. And he said, mate, uh, uh, do you know any opera? And I said, well, not really, but, you know, I've been working on that record. Oh, yeah, you did too. Can you just play me a bit of that? So I, oh, what? Okay, from the week ago. What was it? Uh, so I did a record and he went, very cool. Um, I've got this thing in about two weeks' time. And I did this thing last last year as a Lachlan Murdoch party. and Because Mark was a social photographer. And he says, um, um, we, were, we did this thing at the end of the night, we all got pissed, and, and at about two o'clock in the morning, people knew that I was from the musical theatre world, opera world, which Mark was. And he said, and they asked me to sing a few songs, and there was Clifford Wallace, the former Clifford Wallace agency, who, who, and they had both done a kind of a club tour of, in the 80s of Superstar, with Trevor White and Doug Parkinson. And, um, and, and anyway, so they knew Mark was fun, and, and he'd get pissed at the end of the night, and they'd ask him to sing, and he'd sing some stuff. And anyway, one of the guys that year before had become an event planner. And he gave Mark a call and said, Mark, can you grab two guys? I want you to, it's a Museum of, Museum of Contemporary Art. I just want you to walk around, sort of 
do bits from from operas or musical theatre, and then sort of come back to all three of you come together and do one or two sort of arias. And Mark goes, oh, "All right." So he he grabbed me and he grabbed a guy called David Hayden, and um, it was a weird concept. I was like, "What? What are we doing?" And said, "We're going to dress up as waiters and we're going to walk around." And go up to a group of people who've got wine glasses and, and say, would you like a top up? You know, and you, and you top it up. And then once you've done that, just just step back and just burst into a song. Scare the hell out of them, basically. And I, and I remember I was the first one on it that night. Okay, so, hey, hey, could you like a top up? So you filled up the top and I stood back and I just went, The Phantom of the Opera is there inside your mind. And then I just walked away, <laughs> leaving them standing there going, what, what the hell was that? And of course, the whole room stops and goes, what the hell, what? You know, and, 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 and but then they, they, they carry on and I keep it up everyone's way. And, and another way to walk, another David did or Mark did something. And he burst into some kind of um, line from an aria or a musical thing. And three of us were doing, and people realized there's some whack, there's some waiters who are just weird in this room. So what's going on? And then we did anyway. We we somehow uh, that first first uh, night we then got together and we did three numbers together, and everyone loved it, and it was good. And we went to the park high the next uh, next door, had a few drinks, and didn't think much of it. We, we thought it was a fun night. It was amazing. I'd never done anything like that before. And it wasn't until about ten months later. I'm sitting in Rundle Mall. I've just done a tour of Australia. Is it Adelaide? No, yes, Adelaide. Adelaide was our last one. It was a a big big one of those those days where the drug companies used to spend a lot of money to one dying doctors and we had we had done the whole the major major cities of australia adelaide was the last one and afterwards the, the producer of this show uh, took us out to dinner and and i was sitting down with him i said what's this corporate entertainment thing all about and he said oh well you know we, we look for ideas that um we can present to clients that um you know uh um be entertaining you know during the night and you know where it's a probably in a gala dinner or, or some kind of situation and that's when I remembered what we'd done about 10 months before and I said look what about this idea we, we dress up as waiters and walk around people and sort of fill up drinks and then burst into a big song sort of frighten the hell out of them he said that sounds amazing can you put that out on a piece of paper I've got a gig in two weeks time in Perth for an international doctors conference that sounds like a cool idea. So I flew back to Sydney the next day. I grabbed Mark. I said, remember that thing we did 10 months ago? We just want to write something down quickly, submit it. We might have another gig. So we did it, submit it. Sure enough, we got the gig. We're two weeks later, I'm st- and um, during that time, Mark and I sat down. We thought, well, we better come up with something because this is a sit-down dinner. The other one was a stand-up cocktail. We can't really walk around and just pop up drinks and then do, do a thing. Everyone will see us and it'll be too different. So we came up with this concept where... Where um, I, I think I'm the maitre d', or Mark was, I can't remember, that night, and we'll have an incident where one person will get everyone's attention, ding, 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 with a glass, sing an aria, and the other guy will walk in and say, you go back into the kitchen, thanks. You know, you shouldn't be singing an aria. If you're going to sing a song like that, it should be like this. And he does an aria, and the guy comes back in, and we'll have an argument, and then we'll agree to sing a song together, and that'll be it. That night in Perth, Peter, I have to tell you, as just before, we, we, we developed into a, the real show that you ended up seeing, which was the Italian, the French character and the Australian character, right? Uh, we came off that night, and I was still learning Ness and Dormer on the plane going over because Mark said, you need to learn Ness and Dormer. And so and I, I thought, oh my God, I, I, it took me back to that Auckland audition for Mask. I said, I'm going to stand in front of a bunch of international doctors, or I'm sure, or have, go to the go opera, to the opera yeah. and I'm going to pull, try to pull off the biggest aria in the world 
and I'd, I've never sung that Nestor or an operatic aria in front of a live audience in my life, you know. They gave me a standing ovation. I'll never forget it. I'm standing there going, I don't, what the hell? Why is everyone standing? And I, because I, I mean, I gave everything I had, you know. And, <laughs> and they well, stood a, up and it just ran. It's a great tune. A great, it's you a hit, great if you hit tune. The notes. It's a great tune. Mm. You can get them. And, and so we, afterwards, we sat there outside in a room and looked at each other and we went, I ne- I'll never forget it. it was the most, one of the most palpable th- moments you could put in a bottle. We looked at each other and we knew that something had just happened that was screaming with potential and we had it was up to us or did we want to do something about it we flew back to Sydney we started to put some things together got a database put it out there and then Mark knew event people anyway because he was a social photographer and I got this database from this guy and put it out and you have to read the book because it goes how long have we got I don't know how long we've got to tell the story here but but really the catalyst was I got a call from a guy called Michael Yabsley, a former New South Wales government minister who happened to be on that list of 50 people. And he gave me a call, and this is how the call went. Yes, Michael Yabsley here from the New South Wales Liberal Party. Now, um, listen, we're putting on an event for John Howard to celebrate our second election victory. This is 1998. Right. So there's going to be a lot of people there, um, heads of um, the you know, <clears throat> state, federal politicians, captains of industry, all that sort of thing. Now, last year we put on an event... And everyone talked all the way through the entertainment. And it was combo fiasco. Oh, okay. And uh, anyone talked all the way through it. Now, do you think you boys can come along and get everyone to listen to you? <laughs> and I remember sitting there going, combo fiasco are the hottest item right now. And I've seen them. They're fantastic, yeah. you know. Yeah. But, and, 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 and I'm thinking, um, I have no idea. Um, of course, I said, absolutely, mate. <laughs> You're not a problem, you know. What a challenge. What a challenge. And I remember giving a call, Mark a call that night. So we got the gig, right? And um, gave Mark a call that night. And I said, we've got this huge gig. This is the one that's just going to put us in the map, you know? And he said, you have to ring them up and say no. I said, what are you talking about? He said, mate, I go to town hall gigs all the time. Everyone dies. It's the worst place for corporate entertainment because you're so, too high up. The stage is too high and you're too far away from the front row of seats. And there's such a disconnect. And the song, the, the, the sound... Cav- cavernous, isn't it? Cavernous. Yeah, it yeah. reverberates like crazy. You will not connect with them. They won't listen. And it'll be a disaster. You have said no. Now, Mark also had to fly to South America to do a shoot for National Geographic on the date it was going to be. And I said, Mark, we've got to do this. We've got to we'll just somehow make it work. This is, this is an opportunity we can't miss. And eventually he went, all right. So we grabbed a replacement for him, and it was me and David and this other guy. And that night, that December the 8th, 1998, was the night that changed everything. We created about 20 cards. They went in three minutes. And as I say in the book, and as I say when I do a keynote presentation, the phone started ringing on Monday morning. And that was the beginning of the most incredible journey that I... I could have gone on. To cut a long story short, um, you conquered the globe, really, big, didn't you? Big and, offices and, in London, and New then York, some, Sydney, and then some. Um, we took it to England in two thousand. We took it to the United States in two thousand and one, and it very soon by two thousand two, it was easily the most booked act in the world. We were doing, um, you know, five, six, seven hundred shows um, a year, and then it got to crazy, crazy. Two thousand five, six, seven, eight, nine. We were doing a thousand shows easily, eleven hundred a year. And a terrific cast of, of singers, oh, actors that went we through. Had, we had the best people coming in. Um, Mark, David and myself, obviously, next three. Number four, Dale Burridge. Number five are people like um, Michael Fowles on um, David Malik, um, 
Tom Griffiths, uh, Jose Carbo. These guys came in, and they all, they all had cracking careers in, in their own right at the time. Um, and but then we had to grow so quickly. But we went to England, and we immediately put a squad of about 20, 25 guys together. Some of those guys were the guys playing Phantom, and, and who were on a break at the time. Yeah. Um, we, we've had about four, four or five guys who have played Phantom uh, in in London, um, uh, and uh, and they played heaps of heaps of those big roles. And then we took it to America, and the same thing there. Well, in the States, I read you had a young Adam Lambert. Yes, we did. Adam Lambert, yeah. Before yep. he, his career. Well, well he stopped. He, he told everybody. He, when he auditioned for America's Got Talent, whatever it was. Was America's Got Talent? Yeah. Uh, or no, it was American Rock, the, the, the rock star one. The um, number four. That yeah. came later, wasn't it? To, to, to find the... Oh, no, no. It wasn't. What was the original called? It wasn't Got the Talent. Voice. It was later. Was it The Voice? No, no. It no, was no. the first one. That, 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 America's it, Got Sebastian, Talent. Sebastian, guy, Sebastian won. America. It was Australia's Got Talent. No, no, he didn't. No, it was no, called something else. They're screaming at us again. So. They, they are. They are screaming at us again. It was something else. Uh, Australian Idol. Idol, that's it. It was so, American, American Idol. American Idol. American yes, Idol. Yes, of course. Ryan, and, Ryan Seacrest. And, uh, yeah, American Idol. And um, Adam was working for us at the time doing a few gigs um, when he was auditioning for American Idol. And of course, it wasn't long before he said, guys, I'm sorry, I can't work for you anymore. <laughs> he said, we wish you well, mate. I never met Adam because um, I, I, you know, I would go over every sort of six months Mark and I and um, and I never happened to come across a, there when there was a gig on that he was on um, so but I uh, heard great stories he was a lovely guy and, and he was um, and you know he was he was neat he loved doing it he, and he mentions the three waiters in, some, in, in the world press when he, at the time he said oh, I've been doing this thing where the three waiters we dress up as these waiters and you know Italian and Frenchmen and it's really great and you know so he was he was lovely terrific yeah so Daryl why haven't I heard of you <laughs> Great name for a book. It's a fantastic book. Yeah. That, yeah. And I love the name, yeah. yeah. Obviously, that was something perhaps we all get asked of. Or what have you been in, you know, when you mentioned that you're an actor? It's a bit different, the context, why I talked about that. The reason I called it that was, um, and it became very much the theme of the book, I was uh, flying to Alice Springs to present a keynote for a big Aon Insurance um, day. And when I arrived, the, the, the conference organiser, a guy called Steve Rawlins, big conference organiser, he was just about to retire, but he'd been doing it for 30 years. He was one of those guys where the, the biggest corporates in Australia say, mate, I want to take my people to South Africa. So there's half a million dollars. You take care of it. Wives, I want business class. I want the whole thing. We're going to have be in the safari. We're going to have five of the best days of our lives. And we're taking our top, you know, clients and the whole thing. And he would he would put those kind of, you know, wow. things. Yeah. He, he got the biggest jobs. And when I arrived, he said, ah, oh, you're Daryl Lovecove. Uh, I said, yeah, yeah, look, it's, it's unusual. I don't know who you are. So you have to forgive me. I'm looking forward to your presentation this afternoon. And, um, uh, you know, um, it was quite interesting when I sat down with my client. Uh, I'm sitting down and, and they said what they want. And they said, before you do anything, though, we want Daryl Lovegrove to, to, to speak at our conference. Because we've just seen him at the AFA and we've just seen him here and there. And I've just already done some relatively big big conferences. And he was, he was like, who's he? And he said, oh, he's great. We want him, you know. And, uh, and so you know, I turn up and he doesn't know who I am. And he's a bit like, you know, you know. How can you? How can they be asking for you? And I don't even know who you are. You know, I know everybody. Kind of. So I do. I did the thing in the afternoon, and I walked out. And he looked at me and he said, "Mate, why haven't I heard of you?" He said that is one of the best keynotes I have ever ever seen. Right. That was since I had no idea. What a story! What an amazing story! And that night, um, I popped on the bus with all the delegates, and we went for a forty-minute trip south of Alice Springs, out into this old 
muster station, which has been turned into a place where, you know, you go out for events and you have big evenings there and you stay the night in in a a wool shed, you know, and and you sleep in a, what they've got a word for an old style sleeping bag. Um, There's there's a word for it, the bush they call it, I know. And anyway, and I performed during the dinner. I did a half hour show. Oh, the, you know, the show I do, I do a lot of solo shows like this, you know, big operatic, uh, to big musical theatre numbers and um, the old aria. And then I walked off and he said, okay, I thought you were brilliant this afternoon at the keynote and now you, you've just blown everyone away up there. I, I, I don't understand why I haven't heard of you. And, and I, I relate that story to the woman who helped me write the book, Book Advisor, a woman called Jackie Lane. She, she held my hand through the whole process. And I was telling her the story about and, and when I said, and he said to me, you know, why haven't I heard of you? She said, that, that's a great name for a book. And I stepped step back, I stopped, and I went, yes, it is. So that's the context why I've called it, why haven't you? And, it, and in many ways, it, I want to put the message out there to everybody listening that in this day and age, if you, you know, we, there's so much noise. People have got wonderful, valuable things to give, to add to society, to, to offer society, but you can't do it unless you are prepared to, um, how do I say this, to really know how to put your message across in this stage, of, this age of fast-moving technology. There's lots of people who have got fantastic things to say, fantastic stuff. You have to know how you're going to put your hand up and be seen amongst all the crowd, amongst all the noise. Mm-hmm. And so if you want people to hear of you, you're going, you know, I, I put a how-to list in that book of, of what you're going to have to do to be heard amongst everything else that's going on. Now, obviously, I come from an entrepreneurial angle and the, and the arts. And that's my individual unique story. Um, but people come into the convention world, you know, as speakers from, from all sorts of backgrounds. Very few come from my, my kind of background, which is good. Um, so that's that's the context of why haven't I heard of, it's, it's, it's a, I put a, I say that it's a blueprint for standing out in a challenging, crazy uh, new world, uh, crowded new world. Um, and I try to go deep into you know the how tos of some things we've got to think about, especially going moving to the forties and fifties. You know, if you're in middle management, if you're a leader of teams, if you are. Um, a bit worried that you're looking at the people above you and you want to be one of them. You, you, you think you're close to getting that senior management position or whatever, but you're looking at the people in the younger generation and, boy, are they savvy. Boy, do they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And you realise, ooh, I didn't quite... I'm not sure how that all that software is all about. And, and yet I'm, I'm leading teams who are supposed to be really good at it. You know, Well, my advice is you better learn how that software works because it's changing all the time and you have to be on top of it. And um, I'm no fan of technology but i embrace it massively because yeah. that's where my client base is yeah. my clients are have are all about the interface and um you have to know what they're reading how they get their messages and that's how uh, that's the marketplace i have to continually remind myself i'm marketing to so that's what the book's all about why haven't i heard of you a blueprint for standing out in a crazy challenging crowded new world well, I assume it's your artistic background, but I found it, uh, the book very pertinent to, to, to the creative artist. Um, you know, you can't rely in this industry on, on going from gig to gig. It's, uh, it's very much a gig economy, you know. Mm. See, there are seasons and one nights and yeah. all that sort of thing. You've, yeah. you've got to be able to pay the bills you do. when you're not on a stage or 
or, mm. or directing or designing or whatever. So I thought that it was a, a, it's a great help book or advice book for, for the young artists, whether they be performers or, or creatives of some sort, to, to survive in, in this very precarious industry, especially in this world at the moment with, with COVID and um, certainly what 2020 dished up and sort of continues to dish up. It's, uh, we don't know what's around the corner. We don't. And Peter, I'm so glad that you picked that up as one of the themes of the book because my fellow artists were definitely in my back of my mind when I was writing this stuff. Um, and look, there are some great examples, not just what Mark and I were able to do, but look at what Michael Falzon did. Oh, yeah. he, he was brilliant. Um, he learned so much from the waiters and he'd be the first to admit it. I mean, he was a young kid when he when he joined us. Um, he'd already done shows like um, um, Hello Dolly, Hello Dolly. Yeah. He, and but, um, Simon Gallagher's GNS shows. Yes, he'd done that. Yeah. But but um, he loved the waiters and he and, and of course we, he was he was fantastic. Alfredo, the Italian waiter, and he did over three hundred shows for us. And during that time, he was learning what we were doing, and he he was impressed by the whole you know the setup and how we put it together. So when he got together with um, Dale Burridge and David Malik and they, they created SMA Productions um, with Simon Price as well, um, they did a fantastic job. And, but, um, you know, they, they, we, and good on them. They, they'd absorbed all of that IP, IT that Mark and I had created, that whole idea of what we did. You could easily, easy to pick that up if you take, take half a bit of notice of what we're doing. And they ran with it. And they did an extraordinary job. Um, those guys, I'm very impressed with what they were able to do. And I want to put it out to everybody in the arts world is that, you know, as Peter said, you, 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 there's no such thing as continually being in work. You're going to be out of work probably more than you're in work. So can you find avenues where you still use all your assets, all your skills, all your um, abilities? In other words, still do what you love. But it doesn't necessarily mean that, you, you know, it, it's a show or a concert or, or a movie or a television series. And of course, that, that what I'm saying is really corporate entertainment. Um, event entertainment don't call it corporate so much these days because most of it actually doesn't come from corporate the corporate world's actually gone right down as far as a major kind of a consumer of things it's really the charities it's about or associations and things like that um, but look at people like Leslie Hancock um, leave it to Diva leave it to yeah. Diva um, Chris Ninney does a great job um, there's some some big names out there that we'd all pretty much easily identified with who, who are just so innovative in, in their ideas and what they do and they, they're marvellous and they add so much and I've seen co- the top corporate entertainment acts of England and America because the three waiters will be sharing the bill with them and I, I understand why the three waiters went to number one because the, the strainingism of the show um, the, 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 and, and, and how we are able to, to make it work in any scenario in any, any nation in the world it's been seen in 90 countries that's nine with a zero that's nine t countries including the last show i think they did was afghanistan for the troops american troops you know um um, is that it just works any place and now that's that's australian um now of of not taking no no for an answer and finding ways of making it work in in a in a certain backing a certain cultural um paradigm um and and there's there's some people who have done some fantastic job i just think I'm just proud that Mark and I were one of the pioneers of that and taking that kind of a Australian nous know-how, taking it overseas, and, and, it, and it's just only led to good things. Um, there's some Australians all over the, all over the world now doing fabulous stuff, and Kiwis um, doing fabulous stuff in, in that uh, arena, of course, except for the last 13 months. Mm. Yeah. You've got a website, haven't you? And that's how people can access the book? DarylLoveGrove.com, uh, D-A-R-R-Y-L lovegrove.com and just go to the author section uh, the author page and there you'll see the page and um, 
Uh, just follow the instructions and do it. you can get an ebook or um, you can order the hardback book and I'll, I'll um, sign a copy and send one out to you. Well, it's an inspiring read, so well done for, uh, thank you. for having it out. And, and you only launched it recently, so it's a very new book. Yeah. Um, and thank you too. We've been listening to um, uh, various tracks of yours and your powerful voice through this episode, so it's lovely to, for you to share those as well. It's been a, been a pleasure. And super to catch up and nice to see you again. The one thing in the, in the book, are you, you were just, just sneaking, I'm being sneaky here. Yeah, yeah, be sneaky. Um, you didn't mention um, the quick, what I call the quick diversions, the little short stories. That's really where I think um, the the listeners were going to get a lot of pleasure out of. You know, the little short stories in between each chapter. I interrupt oh, yes. it with a with, short story in, in bold. Yes, I, no, yeah, with italics, italicized. You know, the ones of of us, uh, the three waiters performing for the three tenors. Yeah, I had that there. I had that there. We we we, we, we we've jumped all over the place. Have, that's fine. So to finish off, yeah, what do the three waiters and the three tenors have in common? Have in common. Well, I mean, well, th- that's a lead-in to tell me the three wa- the three tenors story. When the three tenors met the three waiters, or vice versa. Do, have you got time for that story? Yeah, yeah. The three guys from the London team were performing for the International Entrepreneur of the Year Awards in Monte Carlo, right? And they're flying back to London the next day. And one of the finalists, a guy called Francis Yeo, big Malaysian billionaire, um, saw was flying on the same flight back to back to London. And he saw our three guys on the fl- on the plane. He goes up to him. He goes, "Guys, last night you blew us all away. What a show! I, we couldn't believe it." Listen, I just happened to be putting on the three tenors in two weeks' time in Bath, and I, it's got to be one of those show, you know, big outdoor shows like they've been doing for these past few years. And I'm expecting about thirty, forty thousand people, and I'm wanting to erect this tent just at the back on on the on the lawn of the hotel, which it's right next to. Of which is, I want to seat about 200 VIP guests, a, an after-show supper, of which the three tenors themselves will be in attendance. And I haven't thought of the entertainment. How about this for question of the century, Peter and listeners? He said to them, Do you think you guys could do your three-waiter show for the three tenors? <laughs> Holy moly. Oh, my God. I got the call the next day, and I remember not being very impressed. I said to Rob Jonah, um, one of our manager over there, I said, Rob, that's not even funny. He said, Dale, shut your face. Shut up. It's happening. It's actually happening. And after a cup of tea and I lie down, grabbed Mark, and we, we realized, oh, my God. You know, we just couldn't believe it. We couldn't believe it. This is an inspiration. Yeah. Without three tenors, there isn't any three waiters. Mm-hmm. And we put our best team on it, obviously, and, and I saw the date, and I said, Mark, one of us has to be there for it. I can't. That's the date I've got to be. I can't remember where I'm supposed to be, but I couldn't go to London for it. You can go, Mark. Go for it. And he went on. He, and he went out to London for it. And, he, and um, anyway, two weeks later, I haven't slept all Friday night. It's about eleven o'clock in the morning on Saturday morning, and I know that it's about midnight, one o'clock in the morning in London or England and Bath. And I'm thinking, surely by now we know what happened, you know. And I find I got through to Heidi, who has our PA, our um, in London. I could hear all this parting going on in the background. I said, how'd it go? How'd it go? He said, you're just not going to believe it. I said, what, what? As we're finishing our version of Ness and Dorma, the guys look up the back, and there is Luciano Pavarotti, Placido Domingo, Jose Carreras, getting out of their chair before anybody else, leading a standing ovation. (laughs) 
it, and I, I'll never forget. I, I, I probably one of the few times in many years I'd cried a little bit, yep. and um, and I was just completely. I couldn't believe it. I still today. I still today. I tell that story. I, I still can't help but just remember the shiver of it all. It was the most extraordinary thing. Some other great stories in there too. In the book, though, the 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 um, you know the night my very first show in Les Mis and the bomb scare. Yeah. Um, getting that Roland Chess, of course, and there's some other great musical theatre stories. Um, the night that George Henry playing Pontius Pilate caught a um, what shall we call it? A a um, well. No, I'm not going to tell you the story, but it's a of them. It defied the laws of physics, is literally what I was just saying. One of the great stories that you'll have, should have you laughing uproariously. Yes, I'm not going to tell you how it goes. That, so you've got to buy the book. Buy the book to read that. Yes, indeed. Okay. Some fantastic little short stories about me getting arrested, not arrested, in the Dominican Republic for drugs, asking me for drugs, and they had me for a whole hour. And the only way I got out of it was standing up and singing the end of Nessun Dorma. Well, I think you've whipped the appetite um, I hope very so. much so. so um, buy the book, everyone. Buy the book. You must buy the book now. <laughs> We're still going? Yeah, that's great. Fantastic. <laughs> it was great to catch up with Daryl and hear his very inspiring story. As an appendix, it should be noted that though Daryl uh, co-founded The Three Waiters, he sold out of the company 11 years ago and started his own, Lovegrove Entertainment which continues to navigate and produce live events and entertainments. The book is a terrific read, Why Haven't I Heard of You?, and could be just the thing to guide the young performer in navigating the first phases of an emerging career. Salient advice from a creative and business talent, my guest today, Mr. Daryl Lovegrove. I trust all is well with you and your world. Thanks for tuning into Stages. It's always great to have your company. As always, I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, and I'll catch you next time.